Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Dory Carlson. We rehashed a lot of the history of the profession and some of the movements historically that have led the profession to where we are today, as well as have some conversation about how to improve some of our uh, relationships within the profession and outside of the profession. I had a lot of fun with this conversation. I hope you do as well. Uh, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. So today I want to talk about the Mind Day Multifocal for just a second. It has been a really great thing in our practice for our patients who are presbyopes of all areas, but you know those tricky presbyopes are always the ones that are kind of emerging, where they don't want to give up any of their faraway vision, but they're having some struggles up close. And so what uh, the My Day Multifocal has been able to do for us is to allow those patients to transition into a multifocal more easily. And then as we have those patients progress into other levels where they need more ad powers, it's been a nice, smooth transition. So the ultimate hurdle that we've seen in our practice before the My Day Multifocal was that we'd have patients who would resist any transition to a multifocal lens because of that distance blur. We just haven't seen that. So if you haven't started using My Day Multifocal in your practice, I would encourage you to start. Check it out. Uh, contact, reach out to your Cooper reps for those trial lenses uh, and commit to My Day Multifocal for your patients. I think they're going to like it. If you haven't checked out MacuHealth yet for your patients in Category 1 through Category 4, I think there's a lot of evidence that you should be considering. The first is if we just look at AREDS 2 and what they, they talk about, MacuHealth is a, so for patients in Category 3 and Category 4 um, AMD, MacuHealth is a great option for them that follows that entire, um, that entire protocol, and it also adds mesozeaxanthine to the mix, which if you look at some of the evidence, I believe shows me that it's going to thicken the macular pigment better than without mesozeaxanthine. It also uses the a correct AREDS2 dose of zinc uh, at 25 milligrams, and so you don't have to worry so much about the potential side effects of zinc. The other thing to, to think about, and it's beyond the scope of this, although you've probably heard me talk on other podcasts, is that in patients in category one and two, there may be some additional benefit uh, to supplementing them with something that may be a little bit less than the AREDS2, so you don't have to add as much to it. And that's where I use the MacuHealth LMZ3. And so I think if you haven't done this yet, I'd consider MacuHealth in your practice and for your patients. And it's been great for my patients, and, um, and we really feel like we can have the ability to uh, help those patients in all categories of macular degeneration. So you were one of our one of the first guests on the podcast years ago, and um, I don't know if I can share this and tell me if I, I shouldn't, but we were um, we were in Washington D.C. and I was sitting at dinner with my dad and my sister and um, one of my friends growing up with right next door, and he he's a priest now, and he uh, is a priest out in um, in Maryland. And I think actually, I think it's got to be in the Archdiocese of Maryland, um, probably the Washington D.C. Archdiocese. Anyway, he's kind of north of Washington D.C. And so we were having dinner, and I look across the room and I see I see uh, Ron Hopping and Dory Carlson sitting there, and I made a comment to my dad. I said, "If I could be a fly on the wall for that conversation, what sort of perspective they've got of um, of just the history of the profession and where we've gone in the last twenty years." So was I interpreting that right? That like there is this sort of wealth of, of kind of perspective that is untapped? Oh, I don't know if it's untapped or not. I don't know if that's the it's probably way the right way it. to say it. But, you know, certainly I find myself being in the place of historian 
which is kind of weird because I don't think I'm that old, but I, I've been doing this a long time. So yeah, you know, you, you, um, you know, one of the things that I learned, so when I went around doing the school tour, okay, and I went to every single college, school and college of optometry when I was president and president-elect, and... Now, um, Dory, sorry, I'm going to pause because I want to refresh the audience memory. You were president and president-elect what year of, of the AOA? 2011 to 12. Right, okay. Okay, so the year I was president and president-elect, um, I went around to every single school and college of optometry. And in fact, I've been to every single one except for the new one in Chicago, and I haven't been to the one in Worcester, Massachusetts. I think those are the only two I'm missing. I, I actually got to Pikeville after I was off the AOA board. Um, but I learned things as I was doing that. And I'll never forget sitting down with another past president, um, Dr. John, Don Jarnigan, and he was dean of Arizona at the time when I was at the school. And there's like this fraternity that happens when you've been a past president. And it's kind of a cool fraternity because there is baptism by fire, maybe. And you just have this camaraderie that nobody else has quite gone through that. And we all have different stories of when we were on the AOA board and such, but you still have stories. So I was thoroughly enjoying visiting, listening, or visiting with Don that day. And he said, well, you know, therapeutics started really with the Vietnam War. Really? Hmm. So, and I verified this with um, a couple of other people, Dr. Joel Byers and some other folks. And I said, is this really true? So before I go out and tell people this story, is this probably accurate? Yep, I, I've heard that it probably is. So, and I hated history when I was in high school. But now I find myself in that that venue of being the historian or telling the stories. So these guys got drafted, Right. And they so, go over to so Vietnam. Vietnam War. So it would have been sometime in the '60s, sometime during that Vietnam period. Yep. Okay. They get um, drafted, and so they they got drafted because we had a draft. Um, I thoroughly remember my brother calling home because he had gotten drafted, and he had an option to go to Vietnam, or he had an option to go to the National Guard. And I remember really vividly that phone call with my parents about what to do because he had gotten drafted and my brother-in-law was drafted and he was You're over in Vietnam. You're not that old, Dory. So, but I came 16 years behind my siblings. Okay. Okay. So that's That makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. So I was just a little kid, right? But I yep. remember those phone calls. Um, I was like four when my sister got married. So, um, but these folks got drafted and they go over to Vietnam and they're in a battle environment uh, people are getting injured, and there was optometrists that were drafted. Uh, so they went over to Vietnam because this was their obligation for a country. And what happened was people had injuries, and as they came in with these injuries, the eye stuff got thrown at these optometrists, okay? Whether or not they had training, I don't, I'm not going to speak to the training at that point in time in those, that age group because I wasn't around to know what that training was. But I can well imagine that nobody was being taught how to do antibiotics, maybe. I, you know, I don't know. But what happened was, you know, they were just told, well, you know more about the eye than we do, so figure it out. <laughs> so that's what happens is, you know, I talk about baptism by fire. So literally, here's our colleagues that are over there in the Vietnam War situation, and they are treating eye diseases. 
whatever happened in a war situation, they got it thrown at them. So they come back from Vietnam and, you know, then it's the GI Bill and some of these are going back to school. And I don't know, according to Dr. Jarnigan, some of these folks came back and said, well, wait a minute. You know, I was doing all this stuff when I was over in Vietnam and now I came back to the United States and I can't do that. And, you know, people will talk about meetings that there was, and, and I don't even know this because there's Roman other people. Hafner and uh, what was yeah. that meeting called? I remember that. I don't remember what was the meeting called. Yeah, I, I don't either. I, I don't remember. No, I don't either. But there was a famous meeting of getting together and kind of deciding, it, or the folklore of it anyway, of getting together and deciding what we should do as a profession. But you can well imagine there were some of those folks that came back from Vietnam or that were part of that conversation. Or if they weren't directly, they had friends that were part of that conversation. Um, and, and I was told, and fact-checked it with some other people that came before me, that, yeah, that's what happened. And so that started our whole therapeutic, actually diagnostic, um, diagnostics first, um, and then therapeutics after that. And so it's just been really kind of interesting. That I remember when I got out of school, um, I looked at the AOA maps, I don't know about you, probably most places had therapeutics by the time you got out. Mm -hmm. But I looked at the AOA maps, and there was a lot of states that didn't have therapeutic privileges. And I got done with a residency in the VA and thought, well, I want to use what I've done. You know, I I don't want to go backwards. Um, I'm from Minnesota originally, and I really didn't want to go to Minnesota because they had a crappy therapeutic law. They did. Ah. you know, so it's like, it, but you, I remember vividly studying those maps as a student, trying to figure out where it was I wanted to practice. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right about, I, I mean, I, I, there was no reason for me to doubt you, but I think I can say that I verified what you're telling me, not that I verified it, but I've heard the same story. Ed Schneider, who, God rest his soul, was um, a member of the NOA and then a third party consultant for the NOA for years. And, um, and he was one of those guys. Uh, I, I don't know if it was Vietnam, but he was in the military. Uh, I think I think I remember he was either telling me that story or I think that the story was about him. Uh, same thing, you know, and he's uh, went through those things. He had to learn it. He had to learn how to use a slit lamp, you know, out of necessity. And um, yeah, I think I think the story is valid. So, you know, I think the, the thing that I, I kind of think about is because well, I was in school. So I was in school in Oklahoma from 2004 to 2008. And what I remember was one of the distinct reasons I chose Oklahoma was I had already looked at PCO, well, Salus now. I had been accepted to PCO and accepted to Houston. And, um, and it, my dad called down to Bobby Christensen and he said, hey, Bobby, what do you think about – because he knew Bobby for, for years. Everybody knows Bobby. Sure. And he said, what do you think about um, where Christopher should go? You know, should he go to Houston? Should he go to PCO? And he goes – has he checked out Tahlequah? They're doing things down here that you can't. And my dad knew, right? But he didn't even really think too much about it. And he goes, "You got it. You got to check out Tahlequah." So that was like in December, and um, and so you know, having my dad's consultation and and saying like, "Look, you're going to have an experience here that is going to be hard to get other places." And so I went down, I toured it, I, I could kind of re- rehash the. I remember walking in. So one of the things it was just even the 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 culture there. So I walk in on Sunday, my, my wife now, who was my fiance then, and there's a door unlocked on a Sunday morning, Sunday mid afternoon, I guess. And I pull on the door and it opens. And, uh, so I, I'm like, all right, well, I'm just going to go inside and I kind of walk around and 
Um, and then I'm encountered by uh, Bill Edmondson. And, you know, as a professor, you can do a lot of things, but he like immediately was like, he identified that I was not supposed to be there, maybe. Uh, and he goes, what can I, can I help you? I said, yeah, I'm coming for a tour tomorrow and I've got an interview tomorrow and et cetera. And he goes, let me take you around. So he, he's showing me the surgical suite. He's showing me all the different things. I mean, on a Sunday, he didn't have to do this. And so that was the first part is like he took me on his wing. And then I'm, I'm seeing all these areas where I'm like, I get to do these things. That'd be great. I get to do this. I get, that'd be awesome. And so then, um, so then I go and the very first, it's my freshman year, my, 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 my first year of optometry school. And I go and there, um, the, there was a, I think it was the attorney general who interpreted the law in 2004 that optometrists couldn't do shalazians. They couldn't do injections. They could do lasers in Oklahoma because that was codified in law, but it was sort of silent in the law to do the other minor procedures. And so from the very beginning, that very first semester, we were on, you know, we were talking to legislators. We were going to the Capitol in Oklahoma to make a difference. And I'll tell you that, um, that sort of solidified the importance of all of that in my mind through fire because I was down here and I'm thinking, well, you know, the main reason I, I chose the school or one of the main reasons I chose the school is so I could do things that I couldn't do anywhere else and hopefully be able to do those things in, in Nebraska in the future. And, um, and so that was a wonderful experience for me. It really cemented, um, kind of my purpose in a lot of ways, uh, for our patients and, and then ultimately for the profession to try to work towards those things. But, um, but here we are and, um, you know, we're getting these states as sort of this tidal wave. In some ways, it feels like this tidal wave of states that are kind of incorporating these things. And I do believe that it's going to be, you know, it's going to really continue to accelerate. And we're now forced again with places where people are going to go back and practice where they're looking at maps saying, can I, can I do this there? And states like North Dakota and South Dakota and Nebraska are wide open states and, uh, and, you know, we're kind of middle of the pack right now, uh, in where people could practice. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's really kind of interesting just to watch all of that happen. And the, like you said, the waves. So I had a thought while you were talking and now I just like, went right out of my head, but it had to do with, oh, I know what I was going to say. What a great way to train future advocates. I mean, the fact that your school got all of you guys involved and, you know, taught you the benefit of what that really meant to our profession. And, and, you know, it's and the other part of that is we have to remember that our population is aging and there's no more ophthalmology residents. There's it's a finite number of people. So we are going to be the ones that provide that care. And we just have to be ready for that. Um, Yeah. And it's funny, I was visiting with somebody um, from my state. Okay, so my state needs to do some stuff legislatively. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a, I, I think what happens is sometimes we hit complacency because everybody's fat and happy. And I mean, then that's the hard part touch, right now. Sorry right? To so I, you have I, to I, overcome right. that inertia of the complacency. Um, you know, but, and something will happen. But it was funny because I was in a meeting in June and I was sitting next to another person from North Dakota who's probably... 10 years older than me, eight years older than me. And he asked, well, when are we going to do legislative push in North Dakota? And I, you know, so we talked about that and he said, I won't use it, but it's the right thing for our profession. So I'm on board. And I just looked at him and thought, wow, we need more people like you (laughs) because it's the right thing to do. And it's about, 
You know, it's one of the things that my mantra that I said when I was on the school tour was leave optometry better than the way you found it. I think that's true. And I think the, the, the hard part, the thing I, you know, every time I talk to young doctors and students, there's, there's this fire to like want to do those things. You know, I was trained to do them. I want to incorporate them into my practice. But then I think there's this switch. There is a little switch that occurs. And I want to get your perspective on this, that the rubber meets the road. Now I've got debt. I've got a new practice. I've got, you know, any litany of things. Kids. Yep. Kids. And then that's why I think where complacency happens. Because you get busy with your own life and then you kind of forget about the professional part of things. Yeah. And I think it's also hard when... That goes back to leadership. Yeah. So tell me about that. What what do we do (laughs) as leaders? And when I say we, I mean you from a historical perspective and and your perspective on what our leadership needs to to be doing. I'm not asking you to criticize. I know you you wouldn't do that. I'm just asking, like, in your view, from a leadership perspective, how do, how do, you know, I'm in my 40s now. Um, How do we, you know, middle of my career, uh, I would say you're probably in the middle of your career. You tell me whether that's accurate or not. I'm not ready to go retire yet, so I'm still going. I'm being I'm being cautious with my words because my dad just retired and he's relatively young in my mind. But anyway, the the point is is that um, that you know I how do we as how do we as where we've kind of come through how do we how do we bring those people up so that they can do all the other stuff they can focus on their family focus on their practice but still feel like I've got to do this. You know, I think the thing is, is people take on too many, they, they think of too many big bites at a time. It doesn't have to be that big of a thing. Um, and, you know, I, I think for you and I, if you and I pick two people to mentor, mm. you know, because you can't send out an email. You're not yeah. going to get people to be engaged by Facebook. You're not going to be able hey, would you like to do this? Um, nobody's going to come forward and answer the email and say, oh, yeah, sign me up. And that's not how it's going to work. At least that's not how I've seen it work. Where I've seen it work is I've gone up to somebody. In fact, I went up to a young female optometrist just this weekend at a wedding. I met her. And I said, I want to be your mentor. You do? You said and I'm that. like, yeah, we need future leaders. So I want to be your mentor. Um, so... I mean, I think that's where it starts. It's incumbent upon us to create leaders for the future. It's, you know, I went to the AOA meeting this year and I saw so many people that I'll call them my students. The people that I met when I was on the school tour, they're giving lectures, they're involved with legislation, they're running for office in their state associations. You know, they're one of them that I met who's younger than me, you know, is really super involved. And um, I almost was going to mention a name, but I'm not going to do that. But well, you so, can I mean, look to that line because then I'll these, talk to I'll talk to her. I'll, I'll just I'm seeing her. these people get really involved, but it was because somebody encouraged them in the first place. And let's not, let's be honest, that's how I got involved. Um, okay, so I'm dating myself big time again. But you know how I got involved was um, Pat Cummings and Vic Connors put me in a corner, and they were on the AOA board. And you know I looked up to them, and they were from the Midwest ish. know, Wyoming and Wisconsin. So I, you know, I thought the world of them, we kind of had these small states and upper Midwest. And I thought, wow, you know, these guys are big guys, right? And tall, but also big in leadership with our profession. And they just, they put me in a corner, literally at a meeting and said, Dory, you need to be more involved. Hmm. 
we think you have the skill set. We think you need to do this. And now, you know, here I am. I've been president and everything. And, you know, unfortunately, both Pat and Vic are gone. So, um, but, I, you know, those are the two people that put me in a corner and said, you need to be involved. So I think so, that's, it's really interesting that you share that because I, you know, for my dad's retirement party, we reached out to a bunch of people to see if they had some comments recently. And so this is from, I'll, Drew, I, I don't think you would care if I shared this. Uh, Drew Bateman is a past president of the NOA, one of my really good friends. I've had him on the podcast a number of times. He practices in Lincoln. And um, and so he was out of town, so he, w- he couldn't make the retirement party. But um, he said, so he, he said, I, I uh, didn't put it in my video. So he made a video for my dad. But the thing I'll always remember about your dad was um, was coming back to the NOA during my fourth year of optometry school. He may have even been president. I can't recall. My assigned mentor did not make it out there to the association meeting. And, and he lists who it is, which I know I know him. He's a great guy, but I won't say it here. Uh, and then he says, um, so I was wandering around and your dad saw me outside of the door from, from a meet and greet. He stepped outside the room, asked me what I was looking for. Then when I explained I couldn't find my assigned mentor, he invited me into the room and said he could hang out with him for the evening. It was so inviting um, and, uh, he'll, I just never, I'll never forget it. And I think, I think if you ask Drew, you know, there's a number of people who inspired him, not just my dad, but I think to your point, it was all it took was somebody who is just, you know, a, a kind of a stalwart in the association to, to recognize that somebody needs just some, you know, just needs somebody to be there with them, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and that, that all of a sudden now spawn, you know, Drew's, Drew's been all the way through the chairs. He's been in the, the NOA. He will probably, it, you know, I don't know if he has the aspiration, but Drew would make a very good AOA president. Uh, and he would make an excellent addition to the AOA board of trustees. He's not running that I know of, but it, uh, uh, that might be my encouragement to, to make him, uh, to make him <laughs> no do pressure, it. But, Drew. Yeah, no pressure, Drew. But anyway, um, yeah, I think I think to your point, and and I think we need to recognize that. I think I don't recognize it that often. I I'm kind of quiet generally when I'm in those meetings. I like to listen to people, and I like to I have my perspective for sure. But I need to be aware that you know coming out in the hallway and seeing somebody that looks a little lost probably makes all the difference. Well, you know, just when you meet somebody that you know is is a newer to our profession. And you just shake their hand and say, you know, I'm really glad to have you part of our profession. You know, we need people to be new leaders. And just it's just the verbiage. You might know or recall, I don't know, we talked about this before, I think, but I'm a huge John Maxwell fan. Mm-hmm. And one of his more recent books is um, Change, Your Corn- Change Your World. And, you know, the premise is not, you don't get involved and you have to be on the AOA board, Okay. That's not how this works, but you can change your little corner of the world. You know, you may know one or two people and you have influence over those two people or, you know, something that you can do that makes your piece of the world a little bit better. In our case, we're talking about our profession. So, you know, our little piece of our profession, if we can make that better and start small. Um, Pete Kehoe, we're talking about past presidents. Pete Kehoe came up to me at the AOA meeting this um, summer and he said, I want you to meet somebody. So, okay, come over and meet this young woman, and she's thinking about running for um, the board. Okay, that's how it was worded. 
So I'm all over the AOA board stuff, you know, and, and her husband is standing there and they've got kids and, you know, and so I'm all over this. And anyway, she goes, well, I was thinking of the Illinois board and I'm like, oh, well, that's no big deal. <laughs> just, yeah, that's, that's a no brainer. Just do it. Yeah. Yeah. And she kind of looks at me and I said, well, it is, it's just, it's small compared to the other stuff. So well, from a practice commitment standpoint, you know, um, I've heard, you know, that, that, if you're on the board, you're traveling, what, 100 days a year or something like that? It's a Maybe. bunch. And then if, yeah. you're, if you're through the chairs, it's even more. And so it's like 180 when I was president, president elect. That's so, crazy. Yeah. For a couple of years. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So, but so you those- know, here's the thing is, yes, I did that. Okay. But I, I'm a far better leader having done that. Right. You live through those experiences. But, but the bigger part of it is that. I always took something back home to our practice. Mm-hmm. I know that our practice in this tiny little place in North Dakota is a far more progressive practice, far more medical practice, far um, more into leadership and culture and, you know, all of those things in our little corner of the world. And we're little um, than it would have been had I not gone out there and, and visited with people like you. You know, it's the conversations that you have, the things that you learn when it's not necessarily the education, but it's like, well, this worked for so-and-so and they live in a similar size population that might work for us, you know? So it's those exchange of ideas that I found the most beneficial. And I know I took stuff home. Well, I think that's the thing is that, you know, it, you are doing so much stuff, but you're not, you are not staying put. It's not like when you're traveling 180 days, your practice isn't benefiting from a whole number of reasons, like you said, and you're encountering people who are thinking at a whole other level than you would have ever thought. I, that's how, that's what I always think. It's like, yeah. wow, they're doing stuff just like you said, like, well, we could do this in our practice, but even just from a standpoint of, of encountering people who are doing new things that you would have never known about. I mean, even just in the limited, and I always find when you're on boards and I've said this before, but when you're on boards, you sort of start as a member and then you're on a board and then you kind of you peel back some of the onion and then you get into the executive committee and you peel back a little bit more of the onion and then your president is like the onion completely unfolds. And then maybe after your president, then it, it keeps going. But, um, but I think the, the, um, the point is, is that, you know, you learn about even just different pipeline pharmaceutical agents or pipeline therapeutics that are, are four or five years off but you're coming and then you start to think, well, how would I incorporate this in my practice? What could it look like? I remember, um, at a meeting probably four or five years ago, um, I will, I will, it, it, it was not Vuity, Um, but David Cockrell, I was just talking to David about this and he, this was four or five years ago. And he goes, you know, Chris, there's going to be medications that do X, Y, and Z. That's going to, that's going to give, um, give near vision back to patients. And it was not Vuity. It was another one that I'm going to remain because I don't know what confidentiality stuff was there but the point was is that um there was he was on the i mean this was a long time ago and i would have never known about that you know and i i had thought about it and so i'm paying attention when you see little blips and here and there it's like okay that's relevant i i you know i talked to somebody that had told me about this and and so then by the time it comes it's not something that i'm hearing about for the first time or even the second or third time it's something i've kind of followed peripherally for a number of years and i've been able to wrap my mind around that you know, the same thing about, you know, we're seeing with IPL now, it's just generally mainstream. You and I have been talking about that in, in different circles for, I mean, what, five, six, seven years, years probably. Yeah. yeah. I and mean, so the, the same thing is, is to be said. And so, 
yeah, I think that's the benefit of, um, of being involved. That, that's not a tangible benefit and it's not one that you go into expecting. Right. Yeah. It's not tangible, but it, it there's something that it, and then it, I, for me, it kind of creates some excitement about my profession because you kind of like, like you, you know, I've had opportunities where I've heard about things and like, then you start following them for a while and like, and then you start looking at them from a different perspective. I, now I'm on our state licensing board. Imagine that. Um, but so now I sat at the Arbo meeting and they start talking about different things about what's happening with licensure and kiosk eye care came up, um, as one of the conversations and, um, using artificial intelligence. That's kind of the auspices of why the conversation came up and, and I had my AOA hat on. And so I approached this individual and I said, have you thought about the fact that you need to talk to AOA because they might be portraying it as a comprehensive eye exam and it's not, you know, and I, I just, and it was somebody that is in the know, he's a very smart person, but he hadn't thought of it from that perspective. And so it's just, you know, we all contribute something to um, the betterment of our profession. And you may look at it from one direction. I may look at it from another direction, but that makes it what's great about our profession. Cause we have all these different um, points of view. Yeah. I so, mean, yeah, well, I just had a conversation with with Jeff Holovsky, uh last week, and um, mm-hmm. and you know Jeff well, and yeah, um, you know it, it's it his we were talking more specifically about politics in general. Um, but He's running for it, office, right? But it, it is the exact same principle here, where I think as a society we've become fractured, um, and even as a profession we've sort of been become fractured in these other small little pieces. And, um, and I'm concerned that that's going to eat away. It has the potential to eat away at the, at the, at our ability to, to have an impact for our patients. How do we prevent that? Or how do we adjust for it? Is it the same thing that you're talking about right now? Million dollar question. You know, I, I still think it's about educating people and, and change your corner of the world. And, you know, it's you and me and all of the, the Jeff Hilvaskis and the Pete Kehoe's and whoever else it might be reaching out and just saying, hey, we need you to be part of our group. We need you to be, we need you. Um, and, and peeling to it one person at a time. And I know that that change doesn't happen quickly when you do that. But what I know what doesn't work is it doesn't work to send out a mass email and say, would you volunteer for the, to be on the Nebraska board? Yeah. No. So I got to share this with you because it's fresh in my heart. Um, I was, uh, and I want to get your reaction to it. Cause it was illuminating to me. So I, you know, I do a, a workout group called F3 and there's a lot of leadership principles within F3, but, but the whole idea is men get together, uh, and do hard things. Um, and that builds community. And you, so you're working out, uh, doing things that you didn't think you could do before. Well, anyway, one of the things that, um, that about a year and a half ago, a couple guys in the group decided that they were going to run a half marathon every month at the end of every month. And, I, I was like, yeah, I, I run all the time. I'll, I'll run a half marathon every month. And so we started that out. And uh, those two guys have sort of um, cultivated and it's, it's become a big thing. There's 20, 20 to 30 guys every, every month that are getting together and, and running this half marathon. And uh, so then we extended it to have a 5K option and a 10K option. And it's, it's informal. It's basically you get together, you're running, you got 13 miles to jibber jab with guys you don't know. Well, so when a site, when we make a site, uh, what we call an official site, it gets a name and, uh, me, so I'm, I'm going to basically lead that site and make sure that it, I'm going to cultivate it and, and make sure that it stays going. And, um, 
And so I was communicating with the two guys that originally started it. And we were kicking around, what's, gonna, what's the name going to be? Is, what are we going to name this? And so, um, you know, we threw around some jargon, like running jargon and, and all this kind of stuff. It never really stuck. And so uh, and I threw out Halfway House. And, um, and so, you know, you're running a half. There's this underlying thing theme with people running a marathon or a half marathon. There's a lot of guys that do it in, in our group that do a lot of hard things. You know, they'll ruck. They'll do Murphs, but they don't think they can run a half. And so, um, so I, I thought, look, this is a way we can encourage people to do something they've never done. You're, uh, you're sort of doing something hard. You might be pushing yourself at a level of adversity that you're not ready for, that you don't think you're ready for, but you are. And so there, for my peripheral knowledge, never having been in a halfway house, um, I, I think this is perfect. You know, this is a perfect name for this. And, and then I realized there's some guys – I only realized this because guys reached out to me and said, Hey, this, this, um, this name, I, I don't love this name. I'm not going to get a t-shirt that has this emblem on the back. And, uh, and they, and so I was like, wow, you know, I, I didn't think about it from that perspective. And so mm-hmm. yesterday I was, I was running, um, I was doing a workout and there was a guy who I respect a ton. He's a couple years older than me. And, um, I'm hoping he'll come on the podcast to talk about it just because it's a great story. But he, he said, you know, we're, we're uh, kind of just starting and he, and he goes, when you get a chance sometime, I'd really love to talk to you about the name of, of uh, the halfway house. He goes, that kind of struck a chord with me and, um, and I wanted to get your perspective. And, and, uh, and so the reason I bring this up was then he kind of shared his, he, he asked me kind of why we named it that. I explained it to him. Then he shared this really great story of his experience um, where, where for him, this a halfway house, a literal halfway house. This guy, by the way, is wildly successful. He's got a great family. He's he's got this awesome business that he's built from nothing. Uh, and so, but his story was, you know, he was uh, in 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 deep with you know with with addiction and um, and it was his way out. So he had this love hate relationship, and he you know where almost to some degree, I'm wondering if I'm cheapening right with the name halfway house. If we're cheapening the experience of some. And also belittling, um, you know, minimizing the seriousness for others, right? Um, right. But but through his story, it it made me realize, like, uh, had we not had a relationship, the the whole reason I share this is, had we not had a relationship where I'd been doing hard things in the you know in the dark in the morning with him, and he just approached me uh, and didn't share back and forth, and we didn't have a trust involved in that. Um, I would have probably been like, what do you, you know, I'm, I'm going to dig my heels in and I'm going to defend it. Whereas if, but, but the fact that we had that relationship built and I had trust and he trusted me as well to open up, then, then I was able to get so much from that. And I think what we're going to do is going to wind up like really being fantastic, way better than it would have been before in a lot of ways with being respectful to people who have been through that and not cheapening the process uh, not minimizing the name or belittling it in any way. So anyway, that could have never happened if we didn't have a relationship. The, like you said, it's the trust. Yeah. Stephen Covey, oh, have I told you my story about getting a book in the mail from um, the president of Elcon? Uh-uh. So Jim Murphy was the president of Elcon when I was president of AOA. Nice guy. Um, and I, don't, I think he's in Japan or I, I'm not sure. I've lost track of where he's at. But he actually used to live in Grand Forks, North Dakota. So when you talk about trust, 
um, we kind of struck up a friendship just because he loved hockey. I love hockey. You know, it was like he knew our culture up here and stuff. And so we, we got to know each other that way. Um, and I had, um, I had a little bit of an experience, interesting experience with um, the pediatric vision benefits was being defined in um, the Affordable Care Act. And uh, some of our um, three-letter managed care <laughs> plans, um, you know, wanted to be the owners of that benefit and, you know, actually called me out, um, did some really interesting things as far as trying to call on AOA and, and kind of make us do things. And anyway, so I saw Jim at a meeting and he said, well, you know, you know what the problem is here? And um, he goes, there's no trust. There, there's no trust between these groups, so it's just not going to happen because these two three-letter groups um, don't have that relationship. And consequently, nothing's going to get done, you know, because of the lack of trust. And the, lo and behold, like a week later, I get Stephen Covey's The Speed of Trust in the Mail. And so I just, I kind of started laughing. So every time I see it on my bookshelf, I always think of Jim Murphy. It's like, how true? I mean, if you don't have that relationship, if you don't have that trust, um, it's going to be really difficult to get things done. Yeah. Yeah, Dory. So, I, yeah, I, I don't, there's nothing else to say about that. I, from my perspective, I think that it does. It comes down to trust and it comes down, I mean, the trust comes from the fact that you believe that that other human being or that other organization does have good intentions towards you. Uh, and once that breaks down, um, it's hard to build it back up. And even, you know, I, I, I um, he's been on the podcast before. I, I don't think he would care. I'm not going to mention his name, but, but again, same thing. There's a, there's a gentleman in uh, an organization. Um, he's a very, he's a very avid AOA advocate. He's a He's in a state that is very progressive uh, from a standpoint of, of their law, they've done some really amazing things and he's on their state board. Um, and, uh, and in general, you know, he's trying to serve as this advocate where, you know, two organizations just generally don't trust each other, you know, they're, or they're holding each other at arm's length because they don't think that the other one has the best interests of the other at heart. I think maybe that's not fair, but I think that's probably a fair assessment. And so the less of that we can, the, the more trust we can build, I think the better all of those organizations can play in the sandbox together. And it's hard. And part of the problem is too, is that the people change. Yeah. The, the characters involved rotate. And so if you don't have, everybody comes with their own agenda, you know, cause we're humans. And so sometimes what happens is if we all could kind of, you know, keep that, transition that knowledge base that trust level but then sometimes you might have it for just this inkling of time and then the people change and then you kind of have to start all over again so yeah that that was my frustration is that you you kind of get to this place where you establish this rapport this friendship dare i say friendship and you know that you actually had this trust that was starting to develop and but you know we're we're groups of of organizations and um do you remember I reached the, out to the no, go ahead, American. Go ahead. I reached out to the um, Academy of excuse me if I can speak, the Academy of Ophthalmology when I was president. No one on AOA knew that I did it until after the fact, but um, there was a woman who was Ruth Williams is a glaucoma specialist from Chicago. I looked her up. She was president of the, of the Academy at the same time I was president. And I thought, 
wouldn't it be cool if two women could actually work this out and we could actually work together? So I called her just totally as an optometrist, yes, female, yes, and the fact that I was representing my national association, so was she. So I said, is there something that you can think of that maybe we could work together that, you know, just brainstorming and I'm not in an official capacity or anything. And, you know, my thing was, hey, we can all get together about the fact that we want kids to be able to see, right? It's pretty innocuous. I mean, what? who doesn't want their child to see? So I was proposing that we do something with children's vision initiatives or something, public awareness kind of things. And um, yeah, they came back with, well, we'd rather do something about the ergonomics of being an, uh, an eye doctor. And I was like, that's not quite what I was going for. So we just politely had a couple discussions on the phone. Nice lady. But of course, it never went anywhere. Yeah, it's a hard one because you'd think, again, uh, I've had people say that, you know, you'd think because I, I, I think if I didn't know that story, I have seen what happens politically because you'd think that we could agree. right? We could agree that that, you know, quality eye care for children is a good thing. Right. Yeah. But then it just, it you know, you know that what happens is pediatricians get involved and they say, no, we don't want to let relinquish the control and, you know, this and that. And I mean, it's just, you know, I don't know. It, it, but you're right. I mean, it, it, it's pe- you know, politics It's unfortunate because that, that topic, you know, the other topic that I brought up, if we all just had, if we all looked at it from the perspective of our patients uh, and, you know, taking care of people. And if we truly felt that way and that was the most important thing, I think we could accomplish a lot. Um, but unfortunately, there's all these other agendas that happen, and that kind of makes me sad some days. But I choose to be positive. Could you imagine? Uh, I mean, it's kind of baffling that an oral surgeon would not want to have advocate for children to have their teeth examined when they're young. And they would want to abdicate that to a pediatrician. I mean, that that would baffle your mind. And yet it happens, right? You've yeah. got glaucoma specialists and surgeons, largely who don't want anything to do with pediatrics. And uh, and they, they oppose having just basic eye care services, you know, and just abdicating it to a primary care provider. Pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, I want to ask you one last question. Uh, do you remember the 2020 summits? I'm sure you were involved in those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about this a little bit lately because obviously we're into 2022. Do you remember, Did is there something, I, I don't, I mean, I, I remember there's a number of things that we've done that I think are advantageous, but is there something that you think coming out of that, man, that was spot on or that was totally wrong uh, for what we're seeing now in the healthcare realm and specifically in eye care? So, so let me set this up. So for, for the listeners who aren't aware of the 2020 summits, in 2005, uh, all the stakeholders in optometry led by the AOA got together and they sent uh, representatives to this big brainstorming uh, event, series of events actually. And um, I can't remember if it was three or four, Dory, but it was over the course of a- It was probably, three or four, one of yeah. the two. Six, six month period. I was I had the, the pleasure of being involved because of my um, my- place on the board of trustees within the AOSA. And, uh, and so I got to meet a lot of you really early on, which is wonderful for me. Um, and so the whole idea was in 2005, let's project forward about what the profession is going to be like in 2020. So they called them the 2020 summits. 
And um, so anyway, that's the setup. Dory, what what was like spot on in your mind? Is there was there one thing that was like, man, we we predicted that well? Well, the demographics was predicted. Mm. Um, I, I, I clearly remember, unless, you know, because it was based upon what it is today and what we think the future is going to be, right? Mm-hmm. And about money, how ophthalmology is educated, the demographics was one thing that I remember, that they talked about the fact that there was going to be fewer and fewer ophthalmologists and that optometry was going to have to be taken care of over this care, which was hard to imagine kind of at the time. Um so I remembered that aspect of it, that that was pretty spot on with predicting the demographics. Um, and, you know, I honestly, I'm not, I just remember one of the other things was everybody was going to be speaking Mandarin Chinese. I remember the same Why thing. Why do I remember that? So but wrong. It's it was like, a futurist. Yeah, he was yeah, wrong. that totally was wrong. so wrong. Yeah, like, totally really? Wrong. And so every time I think of that, it's like it was Spanish and Mandarin Chinese and English. So, but everybody was going to speak speaking Chinese. You know what he so, was? So he was totally wrong about that, the fact that we would have to speak Mandarin Chinese in the United States in the year 2020. Yeah. But you know what he was kind of right about, and that we're seeing, which is a whole other conversation. But you know the impact of China. You know, in 2005. I mean, I never thought twice about the impact of China uh, in, in, the, in the global uh, sense spe- and, and spe- generally and then specifically in the United States. Uh, but maybe that was his point, more importantly, that, that they are going to have such an impact that um, we better be paying attention. I don't think it was his point. I think anything it's, else with that uh, summit as far as the outcomes? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think um, board certification – was was straight out of that. You know, one of the things that we were seeing at the time was that healthcare was trying to evolve into these um, more of a a global fee model where you're you're getting reimbursed for managing a disease state, system. yeah, as yeah. opposed to a fee for service system. So that was one of the concerns. Uh, there was other concerns about maintenance of certification, which we couldn't participate in. That and that actually wound up coming pretty close to true. Uh, within like within um, some of the MIPS things, they sort of dropped some of those things. But yep, you know, it right. was predicted that that you would have to show ongoing competence, uh, and that actually we saw that in the a- ACA and and some of the uh, high high tech acts and and MIPS has sort of evolved. But if you remember correctly, early on in MIPS, there was a component of um, of like educational education. Sort of, yep. Yeah. That was in the early aspects of it. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, th- that's the thing that, that came out of it and um, that I remember um, that I thought, you know, it was within like five or six years that, it, it, you know, it became something that uh, that was worthwhile. Um, I know they keep so. talking about how, or the pay structure for us. You know, they've been talking about changing the pay structure for us since I was start when I graduated from optometry school. And I just think that it's so that's such a difficult topic and it's such a difficult thing to do. Um, There's just so it's just a convoluted, complicated system that it's really hard to change things like that. And then they try to give us Medicare cuts every single year. And um, you know, it's just, it's it's formulas that were set up a long time ago. And how do you revamp the entire system? Well, the real hard part is, is how do you even, um, you know, how how do you even gauge 
like quality care when when you could have somebody who is way underperforming based on clinical practice guidelines for a specific disease state, but yet they're a cheaper provider in the short term. You know, most yeah. most payers can't see out past a year, two years, five years. I mean, five years is a long time for a payer, especially right. when you get to these these populations that um, you know you know you're going to offload your population to Medicare at some finite point in the future, usually 65 or something, right? 66, 67, and so um, so you're going to offload your care. Well, any amount of stuff that occurs when when you know you're you're the private insurer anything that occurs when a patient's 50 that might have a downstream benefit in 15 years you don't care about that cuz it's not saving you any money it's just costing you money so how do you get to the point of like being able to judge that exact same thing you know i you see chris wolf and chris wolf is really underperforming in the standard of care but i look to a payer like i'm really cost effective cuz i only see that patient one time a year uh, for a patient who's um, a high risk glaucoma suspect, maybe, um, maybe maybe they're an ocular hypertension patient with high risk characteristics, and Dory's seeing that patient two to three times a year, and they're and you're really watching closely, and and um, and and you're going to be on top of it really quickly. Uh, you've built rapport with that patient, so if you do need to pull the trigger on treatment, it's going to be very certain, as opposed to me where I I might see something that's like, well, maybe that's a little different. Let's just start treatment, right? Something like that. You can't tease that out of the data. You can't no. know that. You just see yeah. a cost involved. So and that's what you a do hard today, part. like you said, is benefiting them 15 years from now, but they don't care about that today because today they want it cheaper. Yeah. Yeah, it's a hard It's a hard problem to solve. It's a really hard yeah. problem to solve. And I don't have the answers for that. No, I don't either. I don't either. Um, I'm going to leave it there, Dory, because I, I think we could we could open up a whole bunch of other cans of worms. And, <laughs> and you've got your summer shirt on underneath that jacket, so I'm going to let you get back to your summer. Um, you know, again, thank you so much for being available to do this. Um, I, I really just wanted to kind of rehash some stuff with you historically. I think it's a lot of fun to reminisce a bit like that. And, um, and, and, and your perspective is really valuable to me and it's valuable to, I think our profession. So thanks for everything you've done. Thanks for everything you're currently doing. And, uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for asking me. And remember just find two people, two people. Amen. Two people.